0: welcome to the summit for wellness podcast where we help you climb to the peak of your health and now here is your host brian carroll Hello and welcome back to the Summit for Wellness podcast. I am your host, Brian Carroll, and today's episode is brought to you by Hana One, which is an Ayurvedic herbal blend that helps you to combat different stressors that we see on a daily basis, and it's got a lot of adaptogenic-type herbs in there and also many immune-boosting herbs as well. So if you want to learn more about Hana One, go to summitforwellness.com H-A-N-A-H. If you have been following my podcast for a while now, you may have noticed that we have a lot of different episodes on the brain and using different functional medicine techniques to enhance the brain in a lot of different ways. So we've talked about how to work with depression and how to increase energy production within the brain with a keto diet and many other ways in a lot of different episodes. But what we have not touched on is how to incorporate movement to enhance the cognition within the brain and overall brain function. So in this episode, we have a treat for you because I brought brought on Ryan Glatt, who specializes in this area of incorporating movement to work with the powers of the brain. So we dive into things such as what different types of cueing can do to enhance your brain function. What type of movements or uh, exercise structures can enhance different types of quality within learning or the perception of being able to receive more cognitive function while exercising? And we also dive into what multitasking does with exercise and to the brain as well. So go ahead and take a listen as I talk with Ryan Glatt all about how to improve your brain and cognition with movement. Ryan's passion for embodiment began while studying at California Lutheran University, where he received a bachelor's in exercise science. His post-collegiate career boasts over 15 qualifications and certifications relating to human movement, nutrition, mindset, and soft tissue therapy. This includes the Fellowship of Applied Functional Science with the Gray Institute, mentorships with the Institute of Motion, and the Anatomy Trains' Kinesis Myofascial Integration Training. After recognizing the absence in the discussion, application, and innovation of brain health in the health and fitness industry, he began to feverishly study cognitive neuroscience and health technology. Thank you for coming onto the show, Ryan.
1: Thanks for having me, Brian.
0: Hey, before we start talking about the brain, can we dive into your background a little bit? Obviously, you have a lot of uh, qualifications with the human body, so I would love to hear what got you so interested in the human body and how it brought you into this where you are now studying the brain.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I have a pretty similar journey to a lot of people who started the health and fitness industry. I was overweight in my early years and decide to turn it around and then I want to help other people do it through personal training. Uh, so as I started pursuing personal training, I went through a program, uh, through a community college called Moorpark college. Uh, and they had a Moorpark college fitness program. It was a pretty cutting edge program where they'd have you, uh, study these different certifications in ASM and SCA and ACE, um, as college classes, and then take the, the certification courses. And I got a lot of experience working with sports teams and one-on-one training environments. And then I really got fascinated with other things uh, in continuing education, so looked into the Gray Institute after I fell into a more physical therapy-based route. Um, and of course, you know a lot of people get into the Gray Institute through physical therapy, and I had a mentor uh, who was a physical therapist uh, that was helping me study these things a little bit more in depth. I saw my mom go through um, quite a few issues with her own health. She had kidney disease and eventually went through a lower, lower leg amputation, and then had to do a lot of inpatient uh physical therapy and occupational therapy. Um so I kind of saw how powerful those methodologies were through experience. And um since I wanted to help people uh in the way the therapists I was watching were helping my mom, I decided to pursue physical therapy um and kind of wanted to go more of a neurological uh physical therapy route. Um, and then I also saw some some of my closer and you know loved ones go through some mental health issues and then I started to kind of question you know well how can I how can I serve both needs? Um, because I saw that you know people struggle with neurological conditions, psychological conditions, cognitive issues, uh, but I wanted to find a way to kind of help from the place that I stood within the health and fitness industry. Um, and then as I was pursuing physical therapy, I had a quite an interesting turn where I was, going to go study physical therapy in Scotland, and I had the wrong visa. And so after living in Africa for about a year, I flew to Scotland. And uh, when I they found out that I had the wrong visa, they put me in an immigration detention center for seven days and then deported me back to LA. Um, and that's when I started studying Gray Institute a little bit more in depth um, and started pursuing other things with people like Lenny Parasino, who you've had on the podcast, uh, Tom Myers from Anatomy Trains to get more into the manual therapy side. And once I had kind of had those things under my belt, um, I really started to ask the questions of where was this ability to cater to the needs of clients um, and people around me who had psychological or cognitive needs just as much as physical.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty uh, funny way to get kicked back to the United States by having yeah. the wrong visa. That yeah, must've been interesting. one one heck of an experience. So uh, right now you're currently doing a pretty big study on the brain. Can you talk about that before we go into more about the brain?
1: Yeah, well, I wouldn't call it an official study. Um, You know, those are pretty hard to launch. And I wouldn't say I'm a researcher or I study neuroscience officially. Um, I think that's important to note that I don't have any official studies in neuroscience, no degrees. Um, I do have a couple certifications here and there. But a lot of the credibility aspect of what I'm doing comes from working with people who are really well qualified And having discussions with them, people who are PhDs in cognitive neuroscience or neuroscience itself, um, working with different organizations like the Peak Brain Institute or Neurovision. Um, So I I don't really claim to have any expertise on neuroscience. However, I just see neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience missing from the common day-to-day discussions of, of what we do every day, whether it's physical therapy or personal training. So it's not an official research study, but more of a case study to see if we can take people with cognitive issues. um, Maybe they're having anxiety symptoms, or maybe they're just not—they're having attentional issues. Perhaps they're not just feeling the energy levels that they're looking to have, and actually using exercise as a medium to enhance those things. And it's pretty well documented that a multitude of you know exercise modalities. Can improve uh, neuropsychological outcomes. So you've probably heard of the book Spark by John Rady. If not, then I definitely suggest it to you and your listeners um, about how exercise changes the brain. And you know, I'm not looking to you know reinvent the wheel there, but I do see in the research that there's different types of exercise that actually have specific outcomes. And so what we're looking to do is uh, perhaps look into using qEEG or neurocognitive tests. Um, to see what the effects of these things are before and after these exercise interventions.
0: So going back to the book SPARK, what exactly does exercise do to the brain? And are there different effects on the brain based on the specific modality?
1: Yes. So uh, a lot of the research in SPARK shows that aerobic training increases something called brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is something uh, that allows or mediates new brain cells to actually just be created Um, and improves global cognitive function and executive function. And executive function um, includes different things like planning, organization, attention, um, and then resistance training can improve things like IGF-1 or insulin growth factor um, or increase new blood cells. So there's a lot of really positive and interesting um, results that come from exercise programs in different modalities.
0: Now, have you seen any kind of negative results from different exercises and modalities?
1: Um, It's interesting you mentioned that. Definitely, we want people to get moving more. And the more people move, the better the results. But let's say if you have something like anxiety and you want to do an exercise program to help with anxiety, there has been research showing that uh, if you do something like high-intensity interval training at 80% of your max or above across both gender groups and for uh, multiple age groups, that can actually worsen anxiety. So there are certain considerations. Um, However, we wouldn't want to deter anyone with anxiety from exercising because it would give them beneficial results. But there are certain considerations um, for certain groups um, where people might try one modality of exercise hoping for a certain outcome specific for their goals or their needs and not necessarily get that outcome.
0: So this is where we would have to start making more specific protocols based on people's needs. So if someone does have a lot of anxiety, we might not want to push them as hard or have them go through as heavy of workouts. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, that's right. And what's interesting is that we could look at, you know, what area of the brain is responsible for anxiety. Um, And typically people who have anxiety have, you know, an upregulation of activity in the basal ganglia. And the area, that's the area of the brain responsible for anxiety, um, or at least when, when people have excessive neuronal activity there. And things might calm that down, might include Tai Chi, Qigong, yoga. Uh, the research is pretty conclusive there. Um, what's interesting is we don't want to just calm the excessive activity down in the basal ganglia. We might actually want to bolster that area of the brain's ability to adapt. And so we might have the goal of increasing brain volume In the basal ganglia and research has shown that coordination like exercises, especially in aerobic modalities have been shown to really help with that. So if I was a health and fitness professional, I might actually program coordination like movements, things like animal flow or uh, a string of exercises that require coordination, as well as maybe giving them a more aerobic modality, like a steady state instead of a high intensity interval modality um, in order to get those results.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting because then you're starting to look at this person needs a little bit more, maybe balance exercises, because that can take a lot of coordination or maybe more hand eye coordination. Ways to um, keep their brain occupied while they're exercising without, like you said, going above that limit of 80% and overexerting them.
1: Totally, yeah. And, you know, research has also shown that those types of balance and coordination exercises. Also, really help with the volume of the cerebellum, which is responsible for mediating things like balance. And so, you know, what we're finding is the modality does matter, um, but it's also really important to just get a variety of those modalities. So, usually people who exercise for, you know, specific cognitive benefit usually just go to one type of exercise. And while it's really important to have just adherence um, and exercise program continuity over the long term, we also want variability. Sometimes that's a lot to ask of people, but we really do want uh, as many different types of exercise in there as possible.
0: So also with that, if you are working on a lot of coordination with people with anxiety, is it a good idea to sprinkle in every now and then a higher exerted uh, exercise routine or a workout to uh, boost their brain in a different way, but not to the extreme where you're doing that every single day of the week or it might not even be every yeah, week that you do that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. That would be for the sake of, you know, cognitive and uh, aerobic variability. So we want those aerobic adaptations from high intensity interval training. But I may not, you know, I, I could have clients and I have had clients that do have anxiety like symptoms and they will just exercise high intensity interval training because that's what's available to them, maybe in a CrossFit format, or they might uh, feel stressed and they feel they have to exercise at that level of intensity in order to relieve their stress. So just educating them about the differences of the different aerobic effects uh, and benefits of different modalities, but also the different cognitive effects of those modalities is really, really important.
0: Now, for more of a steady-state uh, cardio exercise for people with anxiety, do you think this allows them to uh, be more at peace within their mind because it's a constant variable instead of the highs and lows of different high-intensity exercises? Are they able to That's push really out? That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, I, I
1: actually one. don't know the answer to that question. Um, there is research showing that you know aerobic training has really good outcome for just about anything. Um, now this might be because aerobic training is so easily controlled for in research methods. Um, but a majority of the research showing that exercise is beneficial for the brain and neuropsychological conditions is mostly using aerobic training. I don't think research has gone into that level of detail of, you know, what are the variables that kind of cause that or are responsible for those benefits. Now, from a psychological factor, uh, the predictability or the steady state nature of steady state training itself might provide some comfort, but I don't know if I'm, you know, qualified to answer that or if the research is showing it. Um, but it definitely could be that, you know, having something to go back to this power of a kata or a ritual is definitely something that people can rely upon for mental health through physical health.
0: Right. So now it, are people able to interpret certain cues differently and more effectively than others as well? Or is this not a factor? Yeah.
1: Cues are really, really important. And if you look at the research by Dr. Gabriel Wolf and a guy named Nick Winkleman, who used to work for Exos and now works in professional rugby, they both popularize something called external focus or attentional cueing. And attentional cueing is really important, especially for our field, simply because when you focus on something external to your body, it usually increases performance and motor learning. And so if we're trying to get people to learn a skill, we'll use those external cues. So instead of doing a shoulder press where you might you know, say, you know, really pay attention to getting your deltoid in this position and pressing up above your head, you might say just punch the ceiling. And that's usually more effective for learning motor skills. But there's also tons of research showing that interoception uh, or your ability to connect brain and body to your internal signals, um, or what, what scientists might also call metacognition. And there's a bunch of different types of metacognition. Um, is also really helpful. So the studies from yoga and mindfulness showing that interoception improves certain areas of the brain as well. Uh, we, because of that research, we don't want to eliminate internal cues from our practices. But it really depends on the goal. If the goal is performance or motor learning, we might want to use an attentional cue. Um, if the goal is interoception and building mind-body awareness, we might use an internal cue. And both of those could be really, really powerful. So it just really depends on the goal. From a cognitive perspective, what I've had a lot of luck with is using those external cues um, and the length you spend on one cue to actually develop your attention. And so there's a couple different types of atten- attention. One of them is sustained attention. And so most people would love to be able to sit down and be you know, engaged in a task for a long period of time or being able to engage a conversation without being distracted, especially in today's modern age. And so sustained attention is a really you know hot priority for a lot of people nowadays. So sometimes I'll just use a certain cue and have them engage in that cue for anywhere from one to three minutes. And it sounds easy, but it's extremely challenging just for the sake of increasing their attentional abilities, not not even for the sake of performance or building interoception. So it really does depend on the goal of the individual. Um, and typically... Our field has been so interested on how can we get them to perform a movement, but so, I don't think we've really come at it from the perspective of what cues can we use to actually improve their cognition. And you'll see this in neurological physical therapy Well, that they will use dual tasking uh, or they will use multitasking or they'll use cognitive training during exercise as different cues. Maybe, you know, memorize the color that you stepped on or, you know, use a clock, invisible clock with your foot to you know, tell the different times that I'm going to assign to you. Those are also cues.
0: So if you're working with somebody and you're teaching them a new movement pattern or a new exercise, do you think it would be more beneficial to use an external cue for the first portion of it? And then when you come back on a later day to redo the same type of movement pattern or exercise to then start uh, dribbling in those internal cues so they understand internally what's going on?
1: Yeah, that's a great strategy. Um, And we always have to ask why. But I think if we were to get someone to just get the movement down, and we want them to get, you know, a generalized 80% of that gross movement pattern, we would definitely use a very simple attentional or external cue to do that and maybe sprinkle in more complexity as we go.
0: Now, you talked about multitasking, and we hear a lot of Uh, people talking about multitasking while at work and not being as productive. Can you talk about how multitasking in the sense of exercise could be beneficial like you were mentioning earlier?
1: Yeah, well, it's different. Uh, You know, dual tasking and multitasking might be a little bit different. Um, Dual tasking is usually when you have two tasks. And when you're doing these two tasks, uh, it it technically is multitasking, uh, but multitasking can sometimes be more than two tasks. But in a therapeutic environment, dual tasking has usually been defined as doing two tasks. And usually what they find is performance decreases on one of the tasks in almost all situations. However, there has been uh, use of dual tasking to determine uh, the the cognitive health of the individual. So sometimes they've used the ability to dual task almost as a way of measuring cognitive flexibility and then linking that to cognitive flexibility in neuropsychological tests. Um, so dual tasking can be one way of training your ability to multitask or handle multiple stimuli, because sometimes this is, uh, really the, what's responsible for falling is a lack of cognitive flexibility or a lack of ability to dual task multitasking itself, um, has a much more wide variety of applications than just dual tasking in a therapy environment. Um, multitasking, I mean, it's a very, very broad topic. And for people that really want to get into it, I strongly recommend the book Brain Chains by Theo Comprenol. Um, and he talks about the costs of multitasking and task switching. But multitasking, um, which can't necessarily be done uh, by the brain effectively, a lot of people convince themselves that it can be done. Um, but if you get into the actual definition of what multitasking is, um, which is kind of a rabbit hole for the sake of this podcast, so we won't, um, is that it does waste cognitive resources so monotasking or focusing on one task at a time is usually better for the performance of that task now if we're going to use multitasking for the sake of training multitasking efficiency or to challenge an individual during movements that's a bit of a different scenario so depending on the context if the context is you sitting at a computer and trying to monotask on one thing that's usually more effective but if you're exercising and you want to increase the cognitive load of an exercise to challenge cognition, that's a bit more of that serves a bit more of a purpose of incorporating multiple tasks. And then there's also this concept of task switching, where if we're rapidly switching between two tabs on a computer screen or our phone to the interview uh, back to a book, you know, we're quickly going to waste cognitive resources. But if I did that in an exercise environment, that could be looked at as something called reaction time and that's extremely valuable. So it definitely depends on the context.
0: So you mentioned a phone in there. What do you think about our connection to our phones all the time now and how that affects not just our exercises and everything we're doing there, but maybe our work performance and performance outside of uh, exercise and work?
1: The dopamine response is very real. Um, Yes. And it's really, really hard to avoid, almost impossible. But sometimes I have to prescribe some sort of, you know, phone dieting for myself or my clients um, when they're trying to achieve certain goals. So if one goal is that they want more attention, and that's definitely my cognitive goal when I'm training, is I'm always training for these sustained attention cues and maybe some reaction time drills. But, you know, when I'm not exercising, I really have to be careful with my environment. So when I have my phone next to me and I'm constantly going between Instagram stories back to whatever I was working on. I can feel myself getting a bit more drained and frustrated um, and lacking, you know, attentional endurance. And so, you know, we do have to diet our usage of, of cellular phones and smartphones a little bit wiser, um, but it's not about intelligence or it's almost like vegetables, right? You know, you're supposed to eat them, but you really just lack the strategies and accountability for using them properly. And the same thing goes for for iPhones and computers. Now, for screen time, you know, there's a lot of conversation around circadian rhythm. Um, and I think it's pretty clear through the research that the more screen time you have, uh, you know, the worse you're off for having risk of certain psychological issues, um, having attentional issues, but also negatively impacting your circadian rhythm, especially if it's you know right when you wake up or right before you go to bed. We should be leaving uh, those stimuli or inputs to more natural sources like sunlight or being able to, you know, once you're in bed, it's a cool, dark place. You're not exposing yourself to a ton of screen time and you can allow your autonomic nervous system to cool down a little bit.
0: So how soon before bed should people get off of their screens so that they can sleep effectively? And on top of that, what happens to the brain when people consistently get poor sleep?
1: Uh, the typical consensus on that is one hour before bed. That's personally something I never abide by because I'm not that disciplined, but I'm working on it. But Me I do neither. take, yeah, I do take other precautions. Like I have these glasses that, you know, block out certain aspects of light. And then I have uh, something called flux on my computer that automatically adjusts the light based on the time of day. So there's different precautions you can take if that's a non-negotiable for you. If, it, if you can negotiate it, I think you will feel the difference and benefit from it. Uh, but when people, I mean, I do feel the difference in my quality and quantity of sleep when I experiment with this, and I suggest you do it as well. um, It does make quite a difference when I, you know, eliminate or reduce the amount of screen time right before bed. And then right when I wake up, my, you know, initial priority is to not go on my phone, um, but to do a little bit of movement, maybe go outside for a quick walk. That happens usually only two or three times a week. But when it does, I feel significantly better. When it comes to sleep, um, you know, sleep's Probably one of the more important processes for cognitive health and things like memory, and to be able to wash the brain literally is something you can't do while you're awake. So sleep literally washes the brain uh, and takes care of all these neurotoxins and things that accumulate throughout the day. Um, so the first ten, the first two hours, I believe, from ten to twelve, are responsible for physical repair, and the next four hours, from twelve to four, are responsible for all the you know mental repair you know, recovery processes associated with the central nervous system. So it's really important you get to sleep around 10. um, And it's usually suggested that you stop having this excessive screen time around 9pm. Anything later than that is probably going to negatively impact your cognitive health. And then it's really important to use a a sleep tracker like Bettit, or some people are using Fitbits. Uh, I'm not really biased to whatever sleep tracker you use, but something that helps you interpret reliably if you're getting into REM or deep sleep. Um, if you don't get into that deep sleep, you, you will negatively impact your cognition. And you've probably heard the research of people who don't sleep as well, waking up and you know having that equivalent to being drunk or having cognitive impairment from alcohol is, is paralleled to having cognitive impairment from a lack of sleep.
0: Yeah. And I remember I used to get about four and a half to five hours of sleep every single night. And I remember driving to work. Um, and it was pretty often that you're driving, but you're kind of dozing at the same time. And it's a scary situation cause you can't stop it, even though it's like my life is on the line, but I'm yeah. still dozing off. Yeah. It's pretty um,
1: frightening. And there's some devices that have come out that you can wear on your finger and stuff like that to keep you awake. But you know, some of those aren't realistic for people. Um, a lot of people are in the same situation. And in addition, um, you know, a lot of my commutes are in LA and everything kind of looks the same. And typically when your eyes are seeing the same environment, there's not a lot of variability. You tend to get a little bit sleepier. It's kind of a scary and strange effect. Um, So, you know, when people are driving and they're not very alert, and on top of that, they're on their phones or listening to a podcast or they're multitasking. Um, In that book, Brain Chains by Theo Comprinol, he also talks about you know how ways to mindfully drive and stuff like that but it is a very real risk where you might think it's casual you're just taking the same commute every day but it could be your life on the line if you're not in you know full cognitive health every time you're driving
0: and not just your life it could be other people's lives which is scary too
1: yeah it's it's a pretty big deal
0: so how many cycles of rem sleep should you get every single night
1: how many cycles in particular
0: yeah
1: roughly. um usually I know I'm not an expert on this, um, but I, I believe it's about three. I don't know if I'm answering that right. I don't know how many cycles. When I'm asleep, I don't I don't count how many cycles I'm going through. I just know whether <laughs> I feel good or not. So um, I'm going through some sleep education right now. Um, I think everyone in our field should be a certified sleep coach or equivalent. Um, so I'm currently educating myself on you know the very small particulars about sleep. Because um, I think it is fascinating. I just uh, w- when you're in REM sleep, um, I've I've noticed that you can have evidence of how many times you're in REM sleep, usually from your dreams and then from a tracker. And so I, you can go in and out of it probably about three times. Some people just never enter it altogether, or enter it only once.
0: Have you seen the research on the effects of lack of sleep? from one night compared to consistently and what that does to the brain.
1: You mean chronic, uh, lack of sleep versus acute. Correct. Uh, chronic lack of sleep is definitely worse. <laughs> um, but you will feel effects, uh, acutely. I mean, anyone can attest to this. If you were to have a really bad night of sleep, you feel it right away. If you consistently have a lack of sleep, you always feel it. So sleep is really interesting. And so is exercise. Both these things um, are very natural to the body and you will feel the difference right away where if you just stop exercising or stop sleeping, you feel like crap. <laughs> so it's very, very clear. Uh, you don't need to get any testing to identify, you know, whether you feel better or not subjectively. Objectively, it's really helpful to, to measure sleep and movement and see how much variability you're getting in the movement side. Uh, but I think we can all attest if we don't get good sleep, acutely or chronically, it's, it's going to affect you both ways. Chronically is always worse.
0: Are there any other lifestyle factors that have a big impact on cognitive function and the brain overall function?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think one of the biggest ones, uh, is lifelong learning. Uh, if the brain's always learning, then it's usually healthier. Um, so they call it educational attainment. Um, Age is a big factor. Obviously, you can't control age, but you can take lifestyle modifications uh, around your age. Usually, the older you get, the more precautions you have to take, especially around cognitive health. Um, if, if people are doing only one type of movement, maybe they're very repetitive um, in the type of exercise they get, they they'll still experience cognitive health. So let's say a person only goes running or walking. Uh, they'll they'll get cognitive benefits, but usually those benefits will plateau. Um, and you won't have diminishing returns, but it, it will plateau. And so variety is really important. And incorporating things like uh, exercise tasks or skills to maintain cognitive function over a lifetime is really important.
0: I had another question in there, and I just blanked out stupid brain.
1: That's all. Hey, you know, don't let (laughs) it. So there you go. Negative self-talk is also a disruptor, right? (laughs) Um, Another disruptor can be maybe a lack of social support, uh, nutrition, hydration. Um, It could be the environment that you're in. Basically, anything can be a disruptor. But the main ones I see are stress, um, sleep and sedentary behavior. And so there's different ways of managing stress. I think that You know, when we say stress management, people immediately think of mindfulness meditation. And some people are immediately turned off to that. But there's so many different ways to manage stress. And so one of the ways we like to coach it is by really just asking them questions about what type of stress management they really like. And so I ask questions like, do you prefer, uh, do you feel most calm when you're kind of doing nothing like taking a bath and it's passive and global all over your whole body? Do you prefer to be doing something like meditation where you're being coached in mindfulness or breathing? Do you prefer to go for a walk? Do you like something that's a bit more global and active? Or do you like massage? Uh, And we really help people find those activities that really resonate with with them for stress management. And then we actually prescribe those uh, styles. So if it's active and global, um, we might prescribe things like walking and yoga. If it's passive and global, it might be something like sleep or taking a bath or being in a float tank. If it's something local and passive, it might be something like you know localized massage or something like that. If it's local and active, it might be mobility drills. And so you'll find that with your clients and um, maybe some some of our, our our own experiences that we have preferences of how we like to relieve stress. Um, and some people like that to be more active, and some people like it to be more passive. And I think a variety of all those different modalities for stress management are also really important. We've talked about sleep already and sedentary behavior is another big disruptor of cognitive health. Um, We know that when you move, you get blood flow and neurochemicals present in the brain. And that's probably one of the best ways to, um, you know, incorporate more cognitive health and physical health into your lifestyle is just moving. Now, it's not realistic for everyone to always be moving, but we do know when, you know, you, if you feel a little bit mentally blocked or foggy, movement can definitely help you acutely and in the long term.
0: So that's a great point. If you're at work and you're working on a project and you start to notice that you're kind of checking out of the project and you can't focus as much, getting up and moving around could be a really great benefit to revitalizing that focus that you had when you first started the task.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think movement is, is a really great tool um, you know, just before I got in this interview, I was having this attentional block and, you know, thinking about what I was going to say. And, you know, I, I just went around, did a little walk, did some, uh, you know, Gray Institute style 3D stretching outside and then got back to it. And I was fine.
0: Earlier, you mentioned constant learning, which I think we're all... Um we all really enjoy learning and I get that from you that you're very similar to me and always trying to expand the knowledge that we are receiving. Is there a point where you are receiving excessive knowledge and it's too much for the brain to fully be able to, uh, focus on and to process?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think there is prob I'm sure some sort of memory Experts might be able to answer this better. Um, I don't know if there's a certain amount of knowledge um, that only one brain can handle in terms of its relative memory consolidation um, or its learning abilities. Um, so I don't know if there's a quantitative perspective on that. I know from experience that you know if I'm trying to pursue a lot of different education and I'm trying to just cram knowledge in there, and um, you know I don't really take time to consolidate or reflect on it. Um, Or actually, you know, monotask on that knowledge because there's so much going on uh, with, you know, the educational attainment. Sometimes it can be that you are actually multitasking while trying to learn what you're learning, and this can be very true for, you know, something like the Gray Institute when there's so much content. uh, It's hard to just kind of zero everything out and focus on that, right? And then we we look into all these other certifications that we're pursuing, and there's all this micro education on social media. And when you kind of put all that together, it can be information overload. So I think you have to um, kind of diet it out and portion control, just like you would a diet for educational attainment. Simply because if you have too much, that that could uh, you might reach a point of diminishing returns. Not to, not where you're actually decreasing the amount of brain health that you should be experiencing from educational attainment, but perhaps you might. Um, have cortisol that floods your system from too much stress of all this learning, or maybe you're not storing all the information and learning it, or maybe even applying it the way you would have hoped. And so my experience is when I try to learn so many things at once, I don't end up applying everything and I'm just kind of going through it and I have this certification at the end, but I may not truly understand what I just learned and you know, used all the reflective learning modalities I can to apply it.
0: I know with myself, if I've been studying a certain topic for a long time, if I then switch to a different topic, say I was studying movement quality and then I switched over to nutrition, then I'm able to kind of change the way that I'm inserting knowledge and I don't feel burnt out from that. But if I stayed with movement and never switched over, then I feel I reached that information overload slash burnout stage. So I don't know if that's a form of task switching, um, in a way because you're changing what you're focusing on or what it is.
1: And so you, just to clarify, you experience a benefit when you switch from movement to nutrition?
0: Yes. Yeah. It's a benefit. So it's like once I get to the point where I'm studying one topic and it's, things are getting fuzzy, like it's too much information. Then when I switch to a different topic, all of a sudden I, all this new information can come in and there's space in my brain for it and I'm absorbing all of it. And then once that gets to a fuzzy point again, then I move on to a different topic again.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And I think it's really appropriate to say everyone has their own, you know, emotional or learning style or fingerprint and everyone's a little bit different. And um, what I have seen is that some people have more acuity for audible information. Some people have more acuity for visual information. Um, I think it's important to build acuity for both. Um, but some people have their own preferences. Uh, I think all learning styles are possible. Um, but everyone just has their preferences and their style. So I think that's kind of what comes about where my experience is is a little bit different than yours. And I, I struggle from a lot of attentional issues. Um, so I have to have a pretty isolated environment. And usually what helps me is, uh, having some sort of social accountability where I can, physically practice with somebody or have a conversation. And that's usually where my best information or application comes from. So it really does depend on your own individual
0: style. Well, when you're talking with somebody else, you're almost in a teaching role as well. And we know that when you become a teacher and you start talking out loud, a lot of information, then you start to understand it a lot better. And I've with a lot of my, uh, high school athletes, I've done that too with them where I have them start teaching younger athletes, some of the skills and the techniques. And all of a sudden you start seeing things click in their brain because now they're the ones speaking it. And then all of a sudden, Oh, that's what they've been telling me all this time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think on top of that, a great way to really deliver this is through play. Um, Dr. Stuart Brown wrote the book called play, and he talks all about the research of the benefits of teaching with play, um, or just teaching with movement. So I think we're in a really cool position where we're teaching movement. So we have to move and we also can use play to improve certain cognitive processes and play over and over again has just been shown to be really, really good for the brain too. So as a teaching modality and as a cognitive benefit, both teaching, learning and play could all be combined for a really positive and powerful effect.
0: Now, earlier you mentioned that people have different uh, ways that they learn different styles, whether it's visual or audio or written. Um, For myself, I know that when I do any kind of exercise, I like to listen to podcasts and I'm able to absorb a lot of the information from that. But I was curious about what you think, um, about people listening to podcasts versus music or other, uh, distractions while they're exercising and what that would do on the brain level?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think we could start a whole nother podcast on just that. But, um, I think that sometimes it might not be a distraction for people. Sometimes music can actually improve motor control Uh, There there is research showing that people who listen to music for 10 minutes and then go execute a motor task actually improve their performance on the motor task. So I really believe that um, I think it was for the area of the brain they were looking at was the cerebellum, which is that area of the brain responsible for coordination and balance and all these different stimuli and inputs. So if you can actually use music to optimize, uh, maybe incorporating things like rhythm or coordination, or even think of it as a central nervous system primer, Uh, that might be useful. So it might not be distracting. Uh, It might only be distracting if you feel it's distracting. Um, For audiobooks, if you're really trying to listen to what's being said, um, if you're moving, then that might actually improve the amount of information you can retain. Where I've heard a lot of people who go for jogs or walks while they're trying to learn a language via audiobook actually accelerate their learning a little bit more, which is really interesting. But I think it becomes distracting when the physical task becomes too complex. So there's this inverse relationship between cognitive load, which is the complexity or the requirement of the task, uh, cognitively or mentally, and then the physical load. So usually when you're doing these things, uh, you're probably going to motor tasks that are somewhat automatic or known to you previously. If you're trying to do a lot of novel movement or variability, it probably becomes a little bit more distracting because your attentional resources have to go towards learning that skill or that movement.
0: So do you think if you spend all of your time training with headphones in and you're either listening to music or audiobooks or podcasts or whatever it is that you like to do while training and then you take that all that extra stimulation away and put someone in like an athletic situation where now they have to play a sport because they don't have their headphones in and they're not listening to what they're used to performing with, does that decline their athletic abilities?
1: Yeah, so contextual interference, not not in the environment, but in the, you know, kind of the audible or visual environment, right? So if we took a person and said, hey, you're going to you know work out to this music and a lot of the workouts include sport specific uh, movements, and then we want to put you in a sport specific environment without that music. Uh, that would kind of be what you're talking about, if I'm hearing correctly. And I, to be honest, I don't know. Um, I think music allows people to get into the zone a lot. And so if you're in the zone in in a training environment and in the zone in a performance environment, it may just be beneficial overall. Um I do know that if someone wants to improve their visual input or their their ability to track things visually and give attention to to things in their visual environment or field, and they're mostly used to having audible inputs while they're training, and they don't maybe take out the headphones and maybe use their eyes a little bit more and just pay attention to those visual inputs, um, because that's their goal, right? To actually have improved visual attention, then that might be a detriment. But I can't see it for the first example. Probably not. So it definitely depends on the goal um, or the or the specificity of the application.
0: Okay, so if you're working with, uh, let's say, a football player, a wide receiver that's having to use that visual um, aspect to be able to catch the ball or any other hand eye coordination uh, type endeavor, then for them, it might be better to keep the music out of their ears and train them the way that they would be training within a game or a sport.
1: Yeah, potentially. And you might want to have music that doesn't require a lot of attention. Um, maybe some of their favorite music just helps them with that visual tracking. Um, so I'm definitely not saying only focus on one thing at a time and take out your headphones and make it really boring because music might also increase engagement or performance. So you might want to just pay attention to what you're doing during your workouts and why. So, for example, if we're doing training, what are your eyes doing? Um And are you tracking anything or focusing on anything? If not, would it behoove you to do so? And I think if we were to say yes, um, even if you don't have a specific goal of visual attention or building up sustained attention, then you would definitely want to just throw it in there for some variety. So being able to, you know, stare at something while you're running or tracking a moving object or looking at things like Neurotracker where you have multiple object tracking, you know, that would definitely help. And if you were to be listening to music, then, but the cognitive load is already so high on tracking multiple objects, that might decrease your performance.
0: So as we get to the end of this episode here, what would be a couple ways that you think everybody would benefit um, by doing to improve their brain and their cognitive function?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing is uh, getting a variety of of exercise modalities in there if you haven't done that already, uh, just from a basic level. On a more intermediate level, it might be incorporating things like more coordination-based movements um, or doing movements with tasks to them Um, and basically having a task of maybe achieving something, whether it's in a play-based format or uh, a sports-specific format. And then at a more advanced level, being able to do visual tracking during exercise, maybe on a moving target, uh, whether it's your coach's hand or using something more advanced like Lights, that would be more of the advanced application. And then from there, the progressions just look like adding dual tasking, adding visual cues, adding more cognitive training elements to your workout programs would definitely be the best start. Um, if, if we're talking about an exercise environment from a lifestyle modification environment, of course, improving your sleep, nutrition, hydration, or the way you go about educational attainment can certainly help those things. And if those things seem obvious, I think getting a coach that is proficient and understanding all these different aspects is really helpful. Um, And if you are a coach, then being able to look at these aspects of health a little bit more differently or from a cognitive perspective with your clientele, I think those are all great places to start.
0: Yeah, I agree. Those all sound like really phenomenal places to start. Okay. So you mentioned earlier the Peak Brain Institute, and that is at peakbraininstitute.com if people want to learn more about that. What are some other places that people can find you on the internet?
1: Yeah. So Peak Brain Institute is a a wonderful facility. They do quantitative EEG and neurofeedback. I believe you had someone on your show talk about neurofeedback earlier. Uh, So it's a wonderful therapy. uh, And I think that everyone should, should look into it and uh, whenever I train clients for cognitive goals, I always send them to Peak Brain to, to get assessed and do a little bit of training there as well. I'm also partnering with NeuroVision, uh, which is a company that uses neurological uh, eye brain assessments, and then they'll use something called Neurotracker, which I mentioned earlier for multiple object tracking training. Um, personally, uh, I use a few different tools. I use Procedos, which is a mat um, that was actually developed by a GIF fellow um, from Sweden and, um, I also use Vipers and Fit Lights uh, for my training. And then I'll use kind of dual tasking and different cognitive training elements with those tools. Um, so you can check those products out as well. Um, otherwise there's, there's plenty of people across the U S, uh, doing, you know, a lot of great work in the area specialized cognitive training, whether it's for kids like NeuroFit. Um, so I can include all those links for you. Uh, for your listeners in the show notes. Um, but just be on the lookout for more people kind of you know, taking on this more brain training, cognitive training perspective in the field of health and wellness because I think it's a fantastic trend that's that's coming up right now.
0: And are you on any social media platforms as well?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. So you can find me on Facebook, uh, Ryan Glatt, or you can find me at somatic, S-O-M-A-T-I-Q.co.
0: Perfect. Thank you, Ryan, so much for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you, Brian, for having me.
0: There you have it, folks. Ryan is a super smart dude, and we had a great conversation afterwards just talking about a lot of upcoming ideas that he has with incorporating all these movements with uh, brain activity and how to enhance cognitive function while working with people on their movement quality. If you're wondering what the visual trackers look like, if you go to his website, Somatic which is S-O-M-A-T-I-Q dot co. Then there is a video right on there that demonstrates what he's talking about by the visual trackers. On our next episode, we have a special guest with us who specializes in Lyme disease, and he's going to be talking about how to treat Lyme disease and uh, how to avoid Lyme disease at all possible if you do get bit by a tick or any other little pest that carries Lyme. So stay tuned for that episode. That'll be out next week. And if you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Those really do matter to help get us out in front of more people. So if you go to summitforwellness.com iTunes, that'll take you right to the page and it'll take about 20 seconds to leave a rating review, and review. Keep climbing to the peak of your health and we will see you next time.